Hello, hello. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is a true Renaissance man. As an Army Airborne Ranger, he spent time as an artillery officer near the DMZ on the Korean Peninsula, and he shifted his sights toward both public investing and angel investing while prepping to summit Mount Rainier. Give it up to my friend, Dan Conovas. My name is Brian Shinborn. I'm an explorer of people, places, and culture. In my travels spanning over 20 countries across four continents, I've had the pleasure of engaging in authentic conversations with amazingly interesting people. These are their stories, on location and unfiltered. Presented by 8B Media, this is Half the City. So what's up, Dan? Thanks for uh, coming out. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Brian. It's great to be here. Awesome. You know, uh, I've always had a respect for airborne rangers, right? Stuff like that. You know, you're watching the movies, the 101st Airborne, you know, dropping down from the skies on like D-Day or, or whatever else. You know, the Hollywood's done a really good job kind of, I don't want to say romanticizing, but like maybe, you know, telling their story anyways, right? Right. Um, and when you told me the other day that you've done both airborne school and ranger school, I was like, wow, this guy is, uh, legit. And you never would guess because he's one of the most calm, cool and collected dudes. I think that I know anyways. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> nice. So, um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about like, um, you know, how you made that decision to, jo- to join the army? Um, how you uh, made the decision to you know move towards airborne school, ranger school? Uh, I'd love to hear about you know the challenges of each, yeah, and you know that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. So let's start. That's a that's a multi part question. So yes. let, let, let's start <laughs> with the decision to join the military. So I grew up in Scarsdale, New York, which is a really nice suburban community in the suburbs of New York. I was very lucky, as were other members of that community, to have. Uh, the resources, uh, whether it's great schools, safe neighborhood, very great public services, et cetera, caring community where children were put first and students were put first. And so as a result, we had every opportunity available to us. Um, and I was very grateful for that. And I felt like a system and a country that could produce something like that was worth defending. I wanted to give back and show my gratitude for it. There are a lot of ways to give back, whether it's public service, volunteering, whatever it might be. In my case, I'd always had some interest in military history, and I was athletic enough. I said, okay, I wanted to give back by serving. I felt like that was my way where I could show my gratitude and then continue with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Luckily for me, that's basically how it worked out. And I did four and a half years of service and active duty as a field artillery officer in the U.S. Army. So for for those listening, for the uninitiated... Artillery is what? The big guns, right? The big guns, that's right. Like so, the cannons and yeah, that kind of stuff. And the rockets, yeah. et cetera. Nice. And so I had the privilege of serving there with some uh, fantastic soldiers, fantastic leaders. And I had overall a great time in the military, and I, there'd be very few things I'd trade, it, I'd trade it for. For me, my path towards Ranger and Airborne School started with my initial training as an artillery officer. Mm-hmm. So at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, we got the option while we were doing our officer basic course for our artillery. 
we got the option of trying out for ranger school. And what that entails is showing up in the morning to do a lot of PT, physical training, Mm -hmm. a lot of exercise with the instructors that we had. So I was a lieutenant at the time, and there was a captain who was an instructor who at the artillery school who also happened to be ranger qualified. So he had gone to ranger school. This is back in 2005. Mm -hmm. The instructor and instructors, there were multiple of them by the end of it, would lead us through training just to get us familiarized with some basic things that would be required of required of us at ranger school, but mainly it was a lot of physical training. And so the first day of the training, maybe half the class showed up. And on purpose, just like they do in other military schools, the instructors, um, to use the military terminology, smoke the hell out of you. <laughs> right? They're, they're trying to separate the men from the boys. They, they purposely <laughs> make it difficult in the first day because they want to see who wants to come back the next day. Who really so, wants it. Yeah, yep. so the, the, I had a pretty big class at mm-hmm. base, Officer Basics course, and I want to say we had a class of like 120 or 130, somewhere around those lines. Jeez. So maybe, I don't know, 60 people showed up the first day. And that was all officers? It was all officers, all lieutenants, wow. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the next day, 30 people showed up. Uh, and so the, the, the um, group of people who were training for ranger school was cut down quickly. And we did this for the whole entire five or six months that we were there, and I think in the end, we ended up sending somewhere between, I think, 12 to 15 people who made it through that pre-ranger prep program. <clears throat> so, um, so you're talking like 10%-ish. Y- yeah. uh, I mean, of the original, um, the original like 120 that showed up for the first, or that signed up for it. Yeah, maybe 60 people showed up in the first right, day. Right, so right, maybe right. 20% of them yep. um, or so made it, made it through, maybe 25%. Um, and then I think we ended up graduating from Ranger School of those 12 or so people who went. Mm. Um, I think we ended up graduating maybe six, seven, or eight, something like that. Wow. I know at least uh, one guy I was friends with couldn't make it through at that time or had to drop out, but then he subsequently went back. And so, you know, good for him. I think he's still in the reserves, actually. Um, but nice. anyways, yeah, that was the process of uh, of getting there, of starting it. And in my case, it was never a gigantic goal of mine. Some people were gunning for it and they had to do it. Um, you know, the kind of the two leaders in our class who I'm still friends with today who were, you know, corralling us all and encouraging us all to to do this pre-ranger prep, they they were gunning for it. They, mm-hmm. they knew this is what they wanted to do. In my case, I just put one foot in front of the other. And a lot of it's just about not giving up, right? Yep. Uh, at ranger school, they... Yeah, uh, they call someone who quits. Uh, uh, not they don't say it. It's you quit because you couldn't, you know, handle the technical aspects of it or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, or because your muscles were too weak or something. They say you quit because you were an LOM, lack of motivation. There we go. Right, mm-hmm. and so you put one foot in front of the other. Other, you're not guaranteed to succeed and graduate. Definitely not. Yep. But it is the main part, in my opinion, of being able to graduate from ranger school is putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, you know, it's, it, I kind of related to my own experience, right? Like, I, I was a Marine, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And there's statistics somewhere. Like, I, I heard this before I joined. Maybe it changed in the last 20 years. But um, before I joined, I remember seeing or hearing a statistic talking about, like, one in five recruits that enter boot camp don't make it. Right. And for the Marines, you know, it's one of those things where... You know, you'll be able to do the physical stuff. Right. As long as you can pass the minimum physical fitness test, which is like three pull-ups, you know, 60 crunches in a second. 
you know, in a, in a uh, like a like a five k in like less than twenty minutes or something. Uh-huh. It's not like extreme, right? Um, as long as you can pass those minimum PFT requirements, you know, it's really more mental than anything. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I think a lot of a lot of military training, military schools are very mental, very yeah. psychological. Yeah. Um, and that's intentional. That's intentional. Yeah. Uh, you do leave Ranger School, and this is not a new sentiment that I'm expressing. Other mm-hmm. people have expressed this too. Mm-hmm. You do leave Ranger School, if you pass it, feeling like you're fairly impervious to things that life can throw at you. Oh, for sure. Exactly, to put it lightly, right? Um, you get through there and you're just right. like, I could do anything. Yeah, exactly. I'm Superman. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, and so that that is the the whole intent. That's yeah. the whole intent, right? Yep. Of, of of any military school. And well, so last thing you want is somebody going into um, you know, going into fire potentially with any sort of self doubt. Right, right. And that hesitation will kill you. Right. That's completely the idea. And the military, uh, US military is fantastic at training people to be able to do those sorts of things, to mm-hmm. act against their basic instinct. Of self-preservation yep. and do things that are essential for the survival of the team and the accomplishment of the mission. Absolutely. Um, so, anyways, uh, that was me at Ranger School, which um, it took me a little while to get through it and get through it right away. I, mm. I didn't. I wasn't a uh, true blue, just pass every phase mm. the first time. Go. It took me a little mm. while, but I got through. And but then, that's perseverance and resilience. There man. you go. There yeah. you go. That's right. Um, says a lot of says a lot about your character. There you go. That is one way to look at it. Yep. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then um, for airborne school, a lot of people go to ranger school already airborne qualified, meaning they've successfully passed airborne school. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I didn't. I got sent to ranger school first. Oh, okay. But basically, once you pass ranger school. You're already at Fort Benning when you when you finish up, which is the home of the infantry and also the home of the airborne school. Mm-hmm. And they're going to give you, the the people who are responsible for processing you, give you orders to airborne school after that because um, oftentimes those two things go together. I got uh, it. The airborne ranger, um, go, you know, the missions go together. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have no, they generally have extra slots to give right there at at uh, Fort Benning, and so I just got a slot for the next one. And so typically, airborne school certainly is an intense school. You're jumping out of airplanes, right? And safety is paramount, and mm-hmm. taking care of of your buddies, your teammates uh, is paramount, and certainly the instructors there um, mm-hmm. are not uh, not kind about any, any infractions, right? I'm sure. But given the experience I had just previously gone through with ranger school, airborne school was relatively easy. And so I, I use it as mainly a three week vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you cut your teeth with ranger school and like, yeah, I'm good. I'll just breeze right through here. Yeah. Chill on the yeah, beach. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have felt that way had I not just been through that experience, but because I yeah. had, um, it, it, it felt that way to me. Uh, it's all about relative intensity. And you see these yeah. guys struggling and you're like, Psh. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't go nothing. that far. <laughs> we're still I was still out there in the you know in the in the Georgia heat in yeah. uh, in June, but yeah. I, I mean, I, all due respect to everybody, yes, of, of course. course yes, Everyone's of got course. their own. Of course, you know it's yes. all relative, like you said. Like, That's right. It's all relative. Just, it just happened to be that I was coming out of. It was a different situation. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. So, <laughs> um, and yeah, and that was the that was my training in the military. It mm-hmm. took a year for me to get through six months of 
my artillery school and then ranger school and airborne school. And there's some kind of downtime in between all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I spent a year in training and then they uh, sent me off to my first actual duty station, which was Korea, where right. I had, again, the privilege of serving um, for two years. So where so so this was near the DMZ, right? Yes. So at the time, the I'm not sure where, where everyone's stationed now, but at the time I was stationed north of Seoul, but not quite at the DMZ, at two different bases, Camp Red Cloud and Camp Casey, um, who, who my dog's named after, by the way. Oh, cool. And at those two duty stations, I served with the 2nd Infantry Division the whole time, uh, but specifically the artillery unit that I was with um, at Camp Casey was 138 Field Artillery, um, which um, has rocket launchers, MLRS, multiple launch rocket system, rocket launchers as its primary weapon system. Where, um, <clears throat> just trying to get an understanding of like where about you, I mean, you said you're near the DMZ, but like, yeah. can you maybe show me on a map? Just yeah, kinda... sure. So, and so yeah. audience listening at home, you can just, you just got to visualize it. Yeah, if you pull up <laughs> Google Maps and zoom yeah. in on Seoul, um, okay. which is towards the <clears throat> northwest of South Korea. Yeah, I mean, so Korea. looking at it, it's, it's, I mean, I've been to Seoul, but yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's literally like what, 20 miles or something. Yeah. From, from the border, from the border and from, Seoul from is North well Korea within border. artillery range of, uh, of the North Korean artillery that's near yeah. the border. And as a result, that means all the American troops and, uh, rock Republic of Korea troops yep. who are North of Seoul are also within artillery range yeah. of, of the North Korean guns. And so and that's what the 49th parallel. I think so. It? I think so. Yeah. 49 or 47. So. Something I think like that. so. Yeah. And so you see this Lijang Bu right here. Yep. That was uh, where that is where Camp Red Cloud is located. Um, and so I was stationed there for a little bit. And then further north in Tongducheon, there is where Camp Casey is located, where I was stationed for my second year. Huh. Yeah. No, so that's literally, I mean, that looks like probably not more than like 20 miles. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty short. It's, it's not a lot of distance. And while you're stationed in Korea, you also have the opportunity to do the JSA tour. If you saw the, uh, the JSA stands for Joint Security Area. If Mm. you saw um, the news footage about Donald Trump crossing into North Korea. Yeah. uh, I mean, that was just, that's exactly where you, where you do it. Mm. Um, And so you can, as a U.S. service member, go and visit there um, Mm. and take a tour. And, you know, the U.S. service members and Korean service members who are there, uh, both maintaining the area and protecting the area will take you on a tour of the area. So do they allow you to cross the border yep. there? Technically, I, I've crossed oh. in North Korea, technically, yeah. Wow, what okay. they do is there's these buildings, which, again, you can see in the footage with mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Um, there are these buildings where the negotiations between the two sides have historically happened. These buildings are bisected by the border, by the mm. actual border. So like, is, do, is there like a demarcation line or something like that? Yeah, th- there is. If you look in any pictures of yep. it, you, you can see there's a line. And so what the, on the tour, what they'll do is they'll take you on the tour and they'll go, um, the, one of the Korean guards will go and check the building and go lock the far side door that's in North Korean territory. Mm. And then you go inside the building. And when you're inside the building, you can see all around the building mm. and technically cross into North Korea. You know, it's interesting because I've heard so many stories of like, you know, North Koreans trying to defect and crossing the border and, right. like, you know, getting shot or something like that. Right. So, like, you know, so everything that I've heard throughout the years is, like, 
the DMZ, like that line, that border is like the most dangerous border in the world because there's never officially, the war is never officially ended. Right. It's still under an armistice. And right. so it is there, there, it's a heavily guarded border. Mm-hmm. Um, you wouldn't cross there at the JSA because there's a lot of attention there mm. at that location. Right. Um, but I imagine there are other points along the border where their the defenses are softer Probably, and yeah. it's less monitored at any given time. Also, uh, defectors go through China as well right. or Russia mm-hmm. yep. um, because both of those countries border North Korea. Well, I've heard there's actually a whole like um, almost like an underground railroad to use like an American yeah. historical yeah, yeah. reference. Yeah. But there's, you know, I heard there's like this whole network of people that like help get people through yes. the northern border yes. through China and then yes. down, maybe down to like Southeast Asia or yep. something like that yep. and then make exactly. their way back to the south. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly how that uh, underground railroad works. Yeah. In essence, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much yep. the same thing. Yep. Um, I wonder, like, so so you cross over the border. Right. And I mean, how do I say this so, so what was the experience like? I mean, you said heavy, heavily guarded. Is it also like, um, you know, let me put it this way. When I was living in China, yeah, all right, I was in Beijing. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of friends that have visited North Korea, right? Um, Americans, English, mm-hmm. other expats, right? Um, Americans can only fly in, okay. For example, okay. Um, English they can't people, drive in through the Chinese border. They can't take the train through the Chinese border. Right. Um, I forget the name of the city, Dongdan or something. Like okay. That. Um, but if you're if you're English, you can take the train in. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. if you're American, you have to fly in. Um, and from what I understand, like it's the most eye-opening, like surreal. Yeah, experience that's what everyone that they've says. ever yeah. had. Right. You know, like it's it's one of those things where you can only go with a tour group. Yep. And you do absolutely everything. Yes. That they tell you to yes. do. Yes. You don't do anything outside of that. Right. Um, I've got some friends that ran the Pyongyang Marathon. Oh wow. Right. And which they've done every year for the last I don't know five years at least. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where the North Koreans run first. Okay. So that way. They so they win. win. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> North yeah. Koreans get like a head start. Yeah. Um, but I've got friends that have done that. And I've got an, I've actually got a friend. I think he's still in Beijing, but he um, owns and operates this tour group uh-huh. in North Korea. Yeah. Um, in fact, he actually uh, he was the tour group op- uh, operator that um, was was heading this group in which Otto Warmbier was. Okay. Arrested and, right and, for and that, potentially doing. He, apparently, he was what happened? Of, apparently, right. what happened is he tried to steal a poster or something. Uh-huh, like that, right, like right. A propaganda poster. Right, right, I mean, right. We right, don't right. need to get into all of that, right. but like it's just kind of a yeah. Like, like I, I know some people that have significant experience. In gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, that's the point that I'm making. So when I hear that it's like a surreal experience, you know, I'm just kind of curious if you've had anything similar like that. Um, and your experience crossing the border, even though it may have been limited since you're in this building. No, no, I did not have any experiences like that. Every, I think most people who have that JSA joint security area experience is going to be very similar to mine. Yeah. It's very scripted. Oh, for sure. And it's designed to be that way. Yep. It's still a singular experience, a unique experience because... 
there's not too many other places in the world where the any exact right there may be not like there that. may not be right um but it's not anything like actually going to pyongyang and running a marathon there that's sure. that, i can't imagine what that's like well but even something like that like from what i heard from what i've heard um like as soon as you land or arrive in north korea the um the police or the guards or whatever they'll take your phone and they'll go through all your photos yeah i'm sure and make sure that there's nothing that's like wouldn't be um, in align with the North Korea's values. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and I guess they check your footage, your cameras and all that stuff as you're leaving. Yeah. Make sure you're not, you know, make sure, like, there's, there's apparently there's only one way you can take pictures of the dear leaders. Okay. Right? Um, things like that. So okay. If you're, so if you're, like, even veering off from that a little bit, yeah. like, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is not a level of risk <laughs> that... I would be comfortable taking, but more power to the people who want that sort of adventure in their lives. You know, what's funny is um, a couple of my friends were like, yo, like, let's do the Pyongyang Marathon. And I'm like, oh, this sounds sweet. Like, let's do it. Like, you know, I'll fall in line and do absolutely everything. Like, you know, not color out of the lines at all. Sure. Right. And I put a message on Facebook. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go to North Korea. And my mom and my older sister <laughs> were freaking out. Yeah, dude. sure. Yeah. They were like, oh, my God, Brian, you've done some like... You know, you've done some crazy things in your life, but please don't do this. Right, like right, I'm like, right. So I, right. I buckled and I didn't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think, um, you're kind of bringing back to this this DMZ's thing, you mentioned, um, you know, Donald Trump stepped over. Yep. Um, what do you kind of make of all of that? Like, out of curiosity. I don't have much of an opinion on it. I'm not a Trump supporter. Yeah. And I'm not, so, not trying to get too political by it, right. but you know, it is a historical moment. Yeah. I don't know how much intention was behind it. Well, I don't sure know generally what his strategy or lack thereof is with <laughs> North Korea. Yeah. All I know is I'm not a Trump supporter yeah. in any way, shape or form. Yeah. No, I mean, same here. Yeah. Same here. Right. You know, um, I, I feel like he's, he ramped up this crisis unnecessarily. My opinion. Sure. Um, now he's going to try to find a way to put it back the way it was before. Yeah. And like claim the victory. Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. Like he's done with so many other things. Sure. Right. Sure. Like, sure. Jesus, dude. All right. Anyways, we, we can, we can move on from that. Um, what, uh, what other stuff did you do um, as an RD officer? Like where, like were you, were you other places as well? Or so you mentioned you were there for like two years. Yes. How long were you in the service overall? So four and a half years in active duty. So I mentioned oh. one year in training, two yep. years in Korea, where most of the time, not the whole time, I was actually doing an artillery job. Mm -hmm. um, I was also a general's, general's aide for a little bit. Oh, cool. um, and then after that, I got orders to go to Iraq on a military transition team. And what okay. those and what is that? What those teams are, MIT teams for short, and acronyms for everything in the military, of yep. course. On the MIT team... We were responsible for training Iraqi security forces, be they army, be they police, so that we could eventually pull out right. and they could be self-sufficient. And so this was back in 2008. I got mm. I got the orders in 2007, but I, I deployed in 2008 mm. after some training at Fort Riley, Kansas. And while, yeah, go ahead. You have a question? Yeah, well, I'm just thinking like um, 2008, where were we with the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts? Was that during like the um, counterinsurgency plan or? Yes, it was. It was during the surge. surge and right. so uh, the unit I relieved, the MIT team that I relieved, mm -hmm. 
was uh, just coming down off the surge. They'd been there for the surge, and I was relieving them. And so luckily, I think history will show this to be true. It certainly felt that way to me over there. The surge worked. It worked. The additional deployment of troops and also, more importantly, the deployment of a strategy to solve the root problem of, or help solve the root problem, attack the root problem of what was going on in Iraq at the time, which was that there were a lot of unemployed, underemployed, especially males, young and otherwise. Desperation. Right, who couldn't mm. feed their families yeah. because previously they had a source of patronage that the U.S. took away. Mm-hmm. The U.S. restored a lot of that patronage, hired the Sons of Iraq and things like that mm. to pay them essentially to not attack not just us but also their fellow countrymen and provide some light security duties. Mm-hmm. And that in conjunction with additional U.S. troop deployment actually did the trick. And mm. so when I got to Iraq in 2008... Um, I spent the year in 2008, 2009 doing training for two different Iraqi army units. One didn't really need us anymore. The Mm -hmm. mission was essentially considered more or less accomplished. They were trained. And so we spent about six months with them before I was sent up further up in the Northeast to a brand new unit in Kirkuk. And this is where I, most of my experience, I remember most of my experience there, it's more vivid there where we were trying to help stand up a brand new unit Mm. and try to help them do simple things like get concertina wire to string around their perimeter. What is concertina wire? So it is barbed wire, the military's version of barbed wire. Like the, like the spirally. Yeah. The spiral with the, with the barbs on it. Yep. Um, and it's much more intense than, or it's what you'd see above a prison, a chain link fence or a prison. Mm -hmm. Right. So more intense than you'd see perhaps in a pasture. Um, so getting concertina wire to put around the perimeter, getting their soldiers to get the proper uniforms, getting their soldiers to learn how to put on the proper uniforms, things like that. Essentially setting them up for success so they right. can be right. Um, self-sustaining. Right. Mm-hmm. So basic things like that. Um, I'll, I'll say a few things about this. The Iraqi officers that we worked with, who almost by definition to the last man had served under Saddam, almost by definition, not everybody, but almost all of them, because in order to be that senior, have that experience, they had to have served under Saddam. Um, They were very professional in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them, um, you know, had less experience and they were more political appointees. So Mm -hmm. had less, were perhaps less professional that way, but most of them were very professional. Um, They generally knew what they were doing under their own system. Mm -hmm. But like all bureaucracies, they never could get all the supplies they needed. They could never get all the ammo they needed, the training Mm -hmm. they needed, the, manpower, the money. Basically various extremely important choke points, bottlenecks. Exactly. So we made do with what what we had. Luckily, again, at the time, the surge, I was beneficiary of the surge having worked out pretty well. So my time in Iraq generally was pretty peaceful, generally. Let me ask you... um, Kind of in general about the Iraqi people. Yes. Right. So like I've, I've, I didn't go, mm-hmm. right. I was medically discharged or, you know, whatever you, you can listen to relentless and hear that whole story. <laughs> um, but I was discharged, yeah. um, one week before my unit went to Iraq. Right. Post nine 11. Right. My unit was the first to go to Iraq. Mm-hmm. We fought, they fought in Fallujah. Yeah. Right. It was sure. fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, but I never got my, I never got the opportunity to, uh, I was never there. Yeah. 
right? Mm-hmm. Put it that way. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, like you hear on the news all the time about like um, the terrorists and like, which ties in with like anti-Muslim sentiment and stuff sure. like that. I'm just curious, like, you know, you spent what, a year and a half over there or something like a that? A year, yeah. A year, okay. Yeah. So you spent a year over there I'm, and you worked with some of these uh, generals and high-ranking officers. Um, I'm, I imagine you probably interacted with some of the people, like the everyday civilians as well, a little bit or no? Not as much. Okay. Sometimes we did, but not not too, too much. Okay. The, but, my job wasn't that. I wasn't on patrols trying to learn about what was going on at <clears throat> the village chief's house or something like that. Yeah, well, I yeah. guess, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm kind of thinking more like, um, you know, what was your general impression of like the culture and like the people like at their core. Right. Even, you know, even if they were some of Saddam Hussein's uh, henchmen or whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. right hands, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm just kind of curious, like what that, the, 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 the overall feeling. I um, suspect that it would be the overall feeling that you would have in a lot of other countries that are foreign to you. Sure. So, People will keep to themselves if they don't have any particular business to be dealing with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was rolling around in heavily armored vehicles with machine guns. So you, know, you stood out a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, but that said, I can't remember a single instance where I did interact with people and folks were angry at me or there was a mob yelling at me or something like that. There, that never happened I remember one time we broke down in the middle of a small village, small town that was along the roads uh, that the road that we often traveled past through, and we broke down. So we had to perform recovery operations to get our vehicle moving again. We essentially towed one of them back to to the base. No one gathered around us and started anything. They just left us alone, um, and. I think generally that is the attitude that most people would take because there's not a lot of advantage, I think, yeah. to be gained by interacting with heavily armed people yeah. um, unless you're trying to harm them or otherwise right. have a mission related to that. Um, people just want to be left in peace. They want to take care of their families, right? Yeah. And they, they want the same <clears throat> things for their families that, that we would want for ours. You know, it's curious that you mentioned that, um, you know, with your experience during wartime, Right. Um, you know, like I'm always curious about this stuff because in my travels, you know, like I've been to, I traveled through Vietnam, for example, mm-hmm. I spent yeah. three weeks backpacking Vietnam. Yeah. Um, I lived in China for over three and a half years. Right. Right. And one of the things that surprised me most about Vietnam was how friendly, right. how genuine right. the people were and, and how much they love Americans. Right. Or just people in general, you know, they're just right. very warm, welcoming right. people. Right. Um, and then, then like in China, I remember when I first came back home, like six months after staying in China, I ran across this lady that I grew up with um, in church or whatever. And she's work. she goes, Brian, what are you doing? I go, oh yeah, I'm living in China, whatever. And she goes, she goes, China? China? Brian, what are you doing there? I'm so scared. China's communist. Like, are you okay? Right. And I go... I fucking love it there. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the government's, yes, CCP, all that stuff, right? Authoritarian, whatever you want to call it. Right. But most people don't really pay attention to it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, most people in general are very welcoming. Right. You know, right. Uh, they want it. They want 
they want to share their culture with you. Yes. Right. They want yes. to share their food. They yes. want to, they want to drink with you. Yes. China is a heavily smoking country. They want to, uh, yeah. they want to, they want you to try their regional cigarettes. Yeah. Right. You right. know, like that's why I smoke again. It's right. Ridiculous. But you know, like this very warm, welcoming people. Right. And you know, essentially what it, what it sounds like you're telling me is like, even, you know, place in Iraq, even with all the propaganda that we receive. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that people pretty much anywhere you go, yeah, whether it's an enemy or whether it's a country that we've fought before right. or whether it's a people that we're fighting at that moment. Yeah. You know, people are essentially people. They yes. want the same stuff. Yes. Right. They yes. want, they want to be able to f- provide for their family. Right. Right. Um, they want to live in a safe environment. Yes. And they want to, you know, and they want to have a small little group of family and friends, like people and be successful, right? Like people want to have some sort of value, right? Yes, absolutely. 100%. I think it's human nature. Yeah. Cultures affect the expression of that, but mm-hmm. ultimately that's human nature and it's going to be a universal. Yeah. I again, didn't have the good fortune of interacting as much with right. the average Iraqi while I was over there because my mission just didn't take me there. Right. But the Iraqis I did interact with, whether they were military, um, or they were soldiers that I was serving with, advising, or otherwise helping, or our interpreters who were yeah. with us, um, I generally had a good experience with them. Yeah. And I, I have, you know, nothing... I have nothing negative to say about that interaction. And I think that's really, um, I think that's poignant because, you know, when you're, when you're fighting a different, when you're at war with another side, it's mm-hmm. easy for all that stuff to get lost Sure, yeah. because what, whichever side you're on, yeah. you know, they're, they're propagating to turn this, per, turn this group of people into an enemy or whatever. Right. And like dehumanize. Them, sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and you know, you may, you may have disagreements on like fundamental beliefs, yeah. but at the core, we're all the fucking same. Yeah. And part of my mission was to do the exact opposite, mm-hmm. to not dehumanize, but, understand that we were fighting the same fight on the same side mm-hmm. most people anyways well, right. and that we had shared interests and shared values mm-hmm. they gave us the military gave us a fair amount of cultural training before we mm-hmm. went nice. i i can not today but at the time i tried to conduct as much of my conversations with uh, my counterparts, my Iraqi counterparts in Arabic as possible. Mm-hmm. I always had an interpreter with me. Obviously, I don't speak Arabic, right. but I tried to pick up phrases here and there yeah, sure. um, that would be helpful. And that goes a long way, too. Right? Oh, yeah. It goes like, a long God, I, way. It goes I mean, I tell you, like, way. when I was in China, like, long I didn't take, way. I took one lesson. Yeah. Um, but everything else I picked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, emergency yeah. Chinese, survival yeah, Chinese, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. But even if I could just say hello in yeah. Chinese, they're like, oh, my God, like, yeah. you yeah. get us yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. basically. Yeah. And it goes a long way, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty interesting. I think that's pretty interesting, but I do want to move on to some other stuff. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do you it. You know, um, we could talk about that and get into as deep as we want about that as long as humanly possible. But, um, I think the biggest point for me on that is you've done some pretty interesting shit and, um, People are people. Yeah. You know? Yep. 100%. And I think that needs to be made more known. Yeah. Um, when you've got people like our 
current president threatening to wipe Afghanistan off the face of the map. I did not catch him say that, but if he did say that, that's very uh, he, wrong. He said it. Um, so he was meeting with the leader of Pakistan. Uh-huh. Um, I think his name is Mohammed Sharaf or something. Okay. I, his, I forget his name exactly, okay. but um, they were in the White House or Oval Office with the yeah. camera opportunity. Yeah. Like he's been doing where he's got this leader, but he's really just talking about his own stupid agenda. Of course. Right. And he was, and someone asked him about Afghanistan. Yeah. Essentially he goes, look, I have all sorts of options with Afghanistan. Uh If I want to, I could wipe Afghanistan off the face of the map. He's like, I don't want to kill 10 million people. Yeah. But if I had to, I I could do it. Awful. Just. And so Afghanistan comes back and they're like, fuck you, dude. How could you possibly say that? Yeah. And everybody else too. Like, yeah, seriously, it's, it's, you know, it's called soft power. Incredibly right? bad. Like, you, obviously incredibly we bad. can do that, but you don't talk about it. Incredibly bad. But yeah. that's, but that's unfortunately par for the course here. <laughs> I know. Not fair. Why? But, um, you know, the scary thing too, is that there's a lot of writing articles, et cetera, from, news sources that are typically considered liberal that are saying that as of right now, polls show that Trump will probably win re-election, which is just scary to think about. Well, I think right now, um, again, without getting too political or topical, but I think right now the, the democratic field is so big yeah. that it's hard for that base yeah. to really consolidate around one person. Right. You know? Right. Um, I think... So I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. So, I, so I think as various candidates drop off... Yeah. You know, that will consolidate itself a little bit more. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, hopefully... Hopefully that madman is dethroned. Oh, I, I thoroughly hope so. You know, um... Because I think he's setting us back a long way. Yes. Uh, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see, you know, like last last cycle um, or last presidential cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone thought that Hillary was going to kill it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, I remember where I was that night on election night 2016. I remember exactly <laughs> what, it, what it was like and what it felt like and the, oh, yeah. the depths of the depression that we all went through then. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember I was sitting in Beijing watching this thing going, I'm not coming back for the next four years, maybe eight. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> yeah, uh, and contrast that with how I felt. I was in Iraq in November mm-hmm. 2008, um, and I remember being in uh, the dining facility at the time. We got news that Obama had won, mm-hmm. and wow, the, the the feeling of excitement then oh, yeah. was great. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know what's weird is like, I actually I was a registered Republican for like ten years. Right. Um, I was always like fiscally conservative, socially liberal kind of guy. Right. 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 Not that any of this matters, but I voted for Romney and McCain. Sure. Right. So I didn't vote for Obama either time. Okay. But um, I've since dropped my affiliation. Mm-hmm. But I also believe that Barack Obama is probably the best president we've had in our generation. Yeah. I think hands down. I, I I agree with that. I mean, you know, there's there's positives and negatives that you can say about anybody, but that's kind of how I feel. Yep. Um. So I want to move. I want to move on. Like move out of the military stuff a little bit. 
Because I know you're up to sure. some really cool stuff as yeah. well. I mean, you've you've managed to maintain your your um, physical endurance activities, that kind of stuff. Trying to, trying to, yeah. I know you mentioned something about Mont Rainier. Can you tell me um, like what you're planning to do and like how this whole thing came about? Yeah, sure. So last year, one of my friends texts me and says, "Hey Dan, do you want to climb Mount Rainier?" And I said, "Okay, I'm interested. What what does that entail?" And he's like, "Well, we can go with guides and they'll take us through it. It's a 4-day program and it would be next August, but you have to decide now. And you have to decide like right now basically today." And I said, okay, let me go ask my wife. And so I said, uh, she said, sure, like that sounds good. And I said, okay, all right, I'm in. I had no idea what it entailed. Mm-hmm. I had zero idea what it entailed. So my friend who, who, um, who asked me to do this was my friend from the army who was in Korea. He just recently got out uh, of the army, so he's in much better shape than I have than mm-hmm. I am, uh, than I am. Uh, I've been out for almost ten years now yeah. at this point. <laughs> But we've been training, and we've been training uh, for trying to uh, summit Mount Rainier next month. So actually, tomorrow we are headed out to Mount St. Helens uh, oh, cool. again for the second time this season nice. to do our last big training hike um, before Rainier um, when we attempt that. And so that is something I'm definitely looking forward to. Come, you know, one way or the other, it's gonna, it's all gonna culminate here in a few weeks. I'm looking forward to that. Of course, I hope I'm successful. Yep. Of course, I hope the weather cooperates mm-hmm. and I uh, have the endurance and the fitness and the ability to, to, to make the summit and all that stuff. But ultimately, I'm looking just to the general experience. Nice. Well, so let me, let me clarify for our listeners right now. Um, so we're currently in the city of Seattle. Yes. Right. Um, so Mount St. Helens and Mount Rainier, those are two of the, like, the, those are the biggest peaks, right? Uh, Rainier is the tallest one here yeah. in the state of Washington. Uh, St. Helens, I don't know where it ranks, but it's up there. It's up there, right? It's up there, yeah. Like how, um, and they're not far. They're like hour, two or three, I something mean, like that. You can drive north, south to the state of Washington, you know, comfortably within hours, not two yeah. hours, but right. yeah, they're, they're they're all within driving distance of Seattle. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um. So so they're close by, but they're like huge. Right? Yes. You can see them on the horizon in Seattle. Yeah. yeah. At least at least Rainier. Yeah, you can see Rainier. Yeah. Um. Do you have an idea like how like how all these are like their peaks or whatever? Yeah, I don't know St. Helens off the top of my head. I've is it like I've a tenor, like a ten thousand foot ish? I want to say it's like eight or nine, mm. something like that. But Rainier is over fourteen thousand. Yeah, so it, it's it's definitely tall. It's some serious altitude. You, when you do it, I've been told that mm-hmm. I haven't done it yet. Uh, that you do feel the effects of altitude sickness and things oh boy. like that. Yeah. yeah, so it's it, it's definitely going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. So Mount St. Helens is a pretty good prepper. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's definitely on the training plan for a lot of folks. And Mount St. Helens. Um, because it is popular for mm-hmm. people to hike and climb. You have to get permits during the season mm-hmm. in order to be able to hike it. So um, you know, I'm going with some other friends, same group of people who I'm training for, Mount Rainier, plus we're adding on a few more to do Mount St. Helens again in two days. Oh, cool. Yeah. Two days. Two days, yeah. So Saturday, so we'll, nice. we'll, what we do is we uh, will take off tomorrow afternoon from Seattle 
head down there, bed down for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and then start an alpine start 2 a.m., something like that, so that we can start start headed up to the top of St. Helens while it's still while it's still dark out, still cool out. Um, and then if we're lucky, depending on the conditions, we might get to glissade down St. Helens. So What is that? Yes, this is the funnest part of uh, and the payoff for climbing. So you get to the top, and mm-hmm. there's snow. Um, and what people have done, rather than walk back down, is you ride the snow back down. Oh, dude, yeah. that sounds so awesome. Yeah, so... So that that I'm excited for, and mm-hmm. hopefully that will happen. That's what we did last time, but we also went in May when I suspect there was a lot more snow. This mm-hmm. time there should still be plenty of snow to glissade down, but I don't actually know. How are you? How are you sliding down to this? Are you like snowboards, toboggans, just like the little like five dollar plastic sleds, like the saucer sleds? What are you? Uh, what's all, going on? There? All of the above. Some people really? bring their snowboards. Some people bring their skis. Awesome. Um, you can just do it in hard shell pants. You can even take, and this is what I did last time, you can take a trash bag and just ride down on a trash bag. Yeah, um, sweet. It, it works. Um, and it's sure as hell beats walking down. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> you don't want to walk anymore after you reach the top. So, yeah, glissading down is, is pretty fantastic. Nice. That, that reminds me of, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing these Nicaragua stories right now. That reminds me of this time I, I summited a, it was a short volcano. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it was an active volcano. Yes. One of the world's youngest volcanoes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the gas, so the millions gas and millions of years old, but top. one of the world's youngest. Well, no, no, it's only like 150. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. It actually sprung up out of a cornfield in like the uh, 1800s. Oh, yeah. it's 150 years old. Not yeah. 150,000. No. years. Like 150 old. years wow. old. Wow. It's okay. like, a, yeah, and apparently oh, it blows really up. It blows like every 15 years or something uh, like that. Oh, okay. And when I was there, it was around 15 years. I don't know if it's, it, it didn't blow up when I was there, but it was definitely active. Sure, sure, you know, sure. At yeah. the summit. Gases. And, at the yeah. summit, you could see the little, the crater. Yeah. And there, you could see gases coming up yeah. out of the ground. Yeah. Um, so we, we went to the top of it. Yeah. And we had a fast way down too. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we um, with, with the tour group. They gave us this backpack, yeah. and you could choose between a snowboard-looking thing yeah. and, like, a mini toboggan-looking thing. Yeah, nice. And uh, we volcano surfed. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. I like the outdoors a lot. Yeah. I Same, of course. generally don't say no when people want to do outdoorsy things, but yeah. I almost never wake up and think to myself, I really need to get outdoors today. Yeah. I for better or for worse, live in my head a lot. Yep. Um, I love to read. I love strategy games, mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. right? So I don't feel compelled to go and get outdoors. However, I'm almost never, I'm almost never regret it mm. because there's so much fun to be had outdoors, including yeah. volcano surfing. So that's Dude, awesome. You know, like, like, well, glissading or yeah. volcano surfing or any of this. I mean, where else can you do that? There's there's only so many volcanoes. It's not like they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, exactly. they're, they're all over the world, yeah. Yeah. but they're only in very specific yeah. locations. Yeah, they're, they're very yeah. they're very cool experiences. A lot of people I've talked to about, um, you know, our pending Mount, Mount Rainier adventure here mm-hmm. are very curious about it because they do realize that, okay, yeah, there's not a lot of, other ways to kind of um, express this sort of desire to experience nature Mm -hmm. and experience your own backyard, your Mm -hmm. own environment in a very 
in a unique, very singular sort of way. And so you just got to go out there and do it, right? And, and you have, which is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I'll never forget that trip, dude. Uh, that sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. I'm super looking forward to hearing about all of it. Yeah, fingers crossed it all later. goes well, so yeah. I got a pretty good feeling about it. Um, you mentioned something about strategy stuff. You, you do strategy games. <laughs> can you, like, can you kind of, <laughs> yeah. that kind of caught my attention. Yeah, can you, like, yeah, um, yeah. dive into that a little yeah, bit? Like, yeah. what do you, what kind of games are you into? Like, yeah. like for me... Me and my brothers and my dad, yeah. we have a tradition. Every time we go home for the holidays, we play Risk. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. we get super into it. Yeah, sure. Like, we used to, like, pretty much be out for blood for each other. Sure, yeah, sure. Um, I think there might have been some fist fights. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. my, you know, at, at one point where my mom was like, she took it away yeah. and she banned us from playing yeah. Risk for, like, yeah. five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm just curious, like, what you know, I hear the strategy stuff and I the strategy games and I'm like, you know, tell me, like, what, what kind of stuff are you into? So... Growing up, definitely, you know, my favorite type of video game, for example, was uh, role-playing games, so RPGs, Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger, that sort of thing. And if I had more time now, I'd still play them because there's no shortage. There's no shortage of fantastic stories that are told through these through these media, right? Through these oh, yeah. mediums, right? And they get you so invested and they know how to get you invested. These mm -hmm. game designers know how to get you invested in college. I played a lot of poker, cool. um, yeah. you know, for, for various reasons, socially also to try to attempt to win money, mainly lose it. <laughs> um, but things like right. that, uh, it was a large part of my college experience. Um, and also when I was a kid, uh, 12 years old, 11 years old, that, that sort of time frame. Mm -hmm. um, it was around 94, 95, 96, so Magic the Gathering had just come out. Magic the Gathering. Yes. You know, I've heard of that game. And I'm, I think I'm a little bit older than you. I was, you know, I was active duty in the Marines from yeah. 2000 to 2002, yeah. so. Yeah. I, I was born in 1983, so. Um, yeah. Two years, about two yeah. years in. Um, I remember, I think I was in a, early in high school. I mean, you said seventh or eighth grade? Yes. So that put me in high school, right? Yeah. So I remember hearing about Magic the Gathering. Yeah. But I was kind of at that point where it was, I don't know. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't there at that point. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, oh, yeah. like I was in oh, a different yeah. spot. Oh yeah. But my younger brother who yeah. was born in 83. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, huge. Yeah. Magic to get. Yep. Yep. Uh, and shout being, out to Dave. <laughs> <laughs> being born at a certain time or being a certain age yeah. and that time frame made all the difference. If I yeah. was actually a, if I were actually a year older or two years older, older it may have worked out that um you know i may have missed it just like you mm -hmm. or i could have gotten in on it even a little sooner and mm. had i done that then some of those cards from those era from that era um which i'd missed by just about a year um are invaluable now they're, really they're quite they're quite expensive yeah because really? they've become collector collector's items as well like baseball cards or something? yeah that hmm. that idea they they're not being made anymore so anyways, so I played for a little bit um, back in those days as a middle schooler and, you know, as the nerdy kid um, who was looking for something that was popular to do at the time, mm -hmm. um, mainly with other boys, um, this was, you know, spoke to me, strategy games and uh, the, the fantasy portion of it, you know, dragons and, and demons and angels and stuff like that. That was pretty cool. Like nice. that, that was, that kept us interested, but 
life moved in other directions. I got involved in sports, beca- became more active socially, especially with the fairer sex. Sure, uh, of course. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, magic disappeared from my life. Well, that's, that's where I was at. But I just got a curiosity. Um, do you recall, like, playing the game? Like, can you... Can you Cause I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Like, can you kind of give me like a high level, like the highest of level overview, like how it works? Yes, sure. So it's a card game that you take a set of cards and you build decks with them. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you and your opponent, so it's typically played one-on-one. One-on-one. Okay. Typically, um, you and your opponent are both powerful wizards mm. and you cast spells to try to defeat each other. Hmm. The game was actually created by a grad student, I believe at UPenn, a mathematics grad student at UPenn, who had a lifelong fascination and love for games. And Hmm. though uh, his name is Richard Garfield, though he's brilliant, this is going to be his legacy on Earth. So not mathematics or anything else, most likely it's going to be this game, which mm-hmm. has grown to be very, very popular. That's I mean, a pretty impressive legacy to leave it. Yeah, is. absolutely. Um, and he's still active uh, in making games and things like that. But anyways, um, so that's the basic gist of the game. You use these cards, cast spells to try to defeat each other. And, you know, the game, uh, though I left the game a long time ago, it, it grew and grew and grew and grew. And... In 2018, so last year, one of my friends who I worked with right out of business school um, turned out that he has some cards, and I talked to him about it. He's like, hey, Dan, did you know there's an online platform for this now that's pretty nifty? No way. Yeah. And, uh, you know. (laughs) So like 15 years. Yeah, 20 years. 20 20 years, yeah. yeah. 20 years. Um, had I not had that conversation, I don't think I would have rediscovered it, but now it's 100% my guilty pleasure is to play Magic the Gathering Arena online. Um, And it takes away a lot of the issues of having to play with paper cards. Not that Mm -hmm. I don't like to play with them, I do. But it's one of these things where um, you don't have to do it in a room full of other people. You Mm -hmm. can do it from your bed or from your desk or on a train, right? right? Just on mm-hmm. your laptop. And um, what I thought I liked before about the game, the, you know, the, again, the fantastical aspects of mm-hmm. it, right? The, the dragons and stuff mm-hmm. actually turned out not to be the exciting part of the game for me. What I like about the game is how deep strategically it goes. It mm. combines the, the deep strategy of a game like risk mm-hmm. or chess or, uh, the Settlers of Catan, mm-hmm. things like that, right? Where sure. it, each choice you make really matters. Mm-hmm. It combines that with the randomness, again, that's that's involved in risk or poker, mm-hmm. right? Where the top card of your deck that you don't know what it is will change the outcome of the game. And so the combination of those two things, the skill and the luck, the roll of the dice and risk, um, keeps people coming back for more because it makes every game you play different, um, which is really, really cool. And it goes very, very deep. So I'm a, I am a newly, newly um, reintegrated. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I've, I've heard, um, I've heard some people have been kind of resurging with like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. Too. Oh, yeah. Like I dabbled with it, but I was never really like that into it again. That was my brother's yeah. sort of thing. Um, 
But I've heard that a lot of people like kind of our age yeah. have been getting back into these yeah. things. So yeah. It must be must yeah. be interesting to like yeah. Yeah. to play against these people yeah. with that new perspective yeah. and that level of knowledge yeah. and experience that you've gained yeah. and thought process and yeah. all that. Um, it's got to be pretty cool. I bet you can get some like if, if you were to play if you had some buddies that like are in the area and they have like a deck of cards like it's probably pretty cool to have like a dude night a dude magic the gathering a, a person a, a friend night i guess i don't want to like be gender biased or whatever uh, for for better for worse mm-hmm. um and this is actually a big topic of discussion within the community mm-hmm. not just magic uh but gaming generally yeah. Right, and gaming is gigantic. It's, it's exploding. Mm-hmm. My wife works for a gaming company. Oh, like cool. it's everywhere. Yeah, and so, yeah, gaming is unfortunately very biased towards males, and as a result, oftentimes there are people in the community slash the slash the the companies and the uh, you know the policies that inadvertently get set up. Not, I don't mm-hmm. think it's intentional, um, at least from the company standpoint. Um, are exclusive, unfortunately, right? And they're yes. not not always integrative and not always um, uh, inclusive, right? And so there's actually to to Magic's um, uh, credit, they really do try to be inclusive. You see it in yeah. the artwork, you see it in their messaging, mm. you see it in um, how they treat people who are not inclusive. Yeah. Uh, which is great. Uh, no, yeah. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, because like, like I tripped up and said, "Oh, dude, you know, it's a dude thing," but it's right. really not, and right. it shouldn't be. Right. You know, it's games. You're having fun. Right. It's strategy. Right. You know, right. like you're using, you're using right. your mind. You're having a right. little bit of a social environment. Yeah. Like right. that's not. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think you tripped up at all. I think this is a, a real issue, mm-hmm. and it's something that you know, the community has to mm-hmm. figure out. If you. If you go have a board game night with friends, which, mm-hmm. like you said, is kind of you're seeing a resurgence. People around our age doing this, and mm-hmm. I think there's several reasons for it. One, it's if people have families, it's a pretty low key way to get yeah. together. And yeah, you're not going crazy. Exactly. You're not getting super wasted right. playing Magic the Gathering. Right. Maybe we're, a casual beer. Or some we're not going out to Coachella because we have kids, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So um, that's a great way to get together. And mm-hmm. like, I just played actually last weekend, Settlers of Catan, with some friends I have mm-hmm. around here while we were out in Walla Walla on a, you know, wine country trip. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was nice. one of the highlights of the trip. It's always fun playing with them. Um, and so, you know, it's a very enjoyable, easy to get into and social thing to do. And I think mm-hmm. this is why board games are going to be around for a long time. And also yeah. in this day and age with the digital stuff that we always have, it's so easy to just sit there on your phone and be antisocial right yeah this forces you to be social kind of nice to go analog once in a while yeah absolutely 100 you know? it's Kinda really nice a bit. it's really nice to go analog and the more you do it the more you're like wow i want to do this again and so i think that uh, there are a lot of social games that and and actually uh brian you and i and your brother dave and whoever else wants to do it, we can do this together there are a lot of social games where there are spaces especially here in the seattle hmm. area um, that are welcoming and really, really um, conducive to doing that. Like, nice. uh, there's one store I'm thinking about in particular. They have a spot in Seattle, also out in Bellevue, closer to where I live, called Mox Boarding House, and they have a full-on restaurant, tons of beer on tap, large tables really? you play games in. Yeah, it's oh. it's it's basically mecca for gamers. So or board gamers. That's, that sounds um, pretty. I mean. Yeah. 
Again, not to be gender biased, but it sounds like a man cave, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does. And then you get there and you're like, wow, this is actually pretty gender diverse yeah. um, because a lot of people go there to play uh, certain games uh, that are um, not, don't have as much of a stigma or much of repetition as being just, just male. So again, yeah. Settlers of Catania well, is just, a good one. So, I, I feel yeah. like when we drop this episode, I'm going to get a bunch of women that are like, what the hell? What about us? But dude, guys, I'm like super like welcoming to everybody. Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yeah. No, Brian. I don't <laughs> so, think you, I don't think you have that reputation for for being yeah. exclusive. No, I'm pretty, so, yeah. I'm pretty inclusive. So when I say things like man cave and stuff, I'm not saying no girls allowed. No, no, but th- that, that's the impression that. <laughs> but that, you know, that, like that's the impression. Just, just that to use get. like yeah. commonly understood for terms. sure, for yeah. sure. So yeah, we'll we'll do that sometime. And actually, I have here uh, because I knew this was going to come up at some point during the conversation. I huh. have here. Uh, two decks of cards here for you and your brother, since I know oh, your brother sweet. used to play, and he can teach he can teach you how to play. Oh wow! Um, I remember already... what these things look like now. I, b- I remember Dave had so many of these things. Yeah, and I was like, "What yeah. are you even doing with this? Can you maybe like um, just I don't know, randomly pull one out and kind of like tell me, like explain like what this thing is about? Oh like, gosh! Okay, all right, it's, 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 just, it's just out of curiosity. It's going down. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm not saying we're gonna we're not gonna open up and play a game right now, but yeah, I'm just trying yeah, to you know yeah. open my eyes a little yeah. bit. Open the ears for people that are listening at home, sure. or wherever they may be. So this is something that's very basic in the game. It's, so I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it really quick. Yeah. So this card it. says swamp. Yep. And then below it is like a a design, an image of a pretty hellacious looking swamp. Yep. <laughs> that <laughs> is lack, what they're trying to convey. For lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, and then it says something like basic land dash swamp M19 to the right. And then there's a skull below it. Yep. And so this is the, the the part of the storyline of the game is that the wizards Mm -hmm. who are the powerful wizards who are dueling against each other using these spells need to pull the source of their magic from somewhere. Okay. And it actually comes from the land. And Ah, so if you are a black mage, a black wizard, you uh, can pull magic from the swamps. So how do I know that I'm a black wizard, and how do I know that it, I can your pull choice. magic from the swamp? It's okay. your choice, yeah. yeah. Uh, it depends. Everyone kind of has different styles, yeah. and there's five different colors, five different uh, sources of mana, they call it, in this game. So the swamp is one. Plains are another. Mm. Islands are another. Mm. Forests are another. And the fifth one is mountains. So you have to like choose to specialize in one, or can you just be like, I want all of it? I'm a rainbow warrior. Yeah, you, you, you can be a rainbow warrior, absolutely. <laughs> the, the problem with it is, and again, this is part of the beauty of the design of the game, yeah. is that the more colors you play, mm-hmm. the less of a chance that you're going to draw the right type of mana mm-hmm. to be able to cast your spells. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's say you are a rainbow warrior and mm-hmm. you have uh, cards of all five colors mm-hmm. in your in your deck, but you only have these two lands in front of you, plains and the swamp in your mm-hmm. hand, and you have a green card, which is cast with forest. Mm-hmm. You can't cast it. If you can't cast spells, you lose because I'm going to start casting spells. You're just going to yeah. kick my ass. So the, yeah. more, the more power you try to pack into your deck, the less consistent your deck's going to be. And this is, again, part of the reason why the game survived so long. These fundamental mechanics mm-hmm. were built into the game from the very get-go 25 years ago. And those things have not changed. And that is part of the reason why this this game has, you know, apparently, if, if the 
statistics are to be believed are, is played by or has been played by almost 40 million people around the wow. world. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A, a couple of commas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of commas there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, this, the digital platform <clears throat> is, uh, without it, I would not be, <clears throat> I, I, we would not be having this conversation. They've nice. done a fantastic job with it. Nice. Well, yeah. I, I see you shuffling that deck and, um, like I said, I'm not trying to get into a game right now, but yeah, we're on. Yeah. In the future, I want to play yeah. that. Okay. And we'll Dave, I'm coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I hope you guys enjoy. Um, and this uh, brings back some good memories for Dave yeah. and uh, also build some new ones for you. Yeah, cool. I'm done. All right. I just sit there and I think about um, who I, I saw. I was watching um, one of those late night talk shows. Um, and this guy, this actor, um, Joe Manganiello, I think was on, mm-hmm. and he was the one that was talking about how he's super into Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he and he, he's married to Sofia Vergara, uh-huh, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he mentioned how like she was like, oh, I want you like something like low key to do, yeah. like you know, take it easy, yeah. whatever. And he found a bunch of his Hollywood friends and he built this like D and D cave in their basement with like horns and like all this other stuff. Yeah. 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 And so I just sit there and I go, how cool would it be like, even with like magic, the gathering or something like that to like create like your own little, like, you know, uh, arena. Yeah. You know, magic cave. Right. In the basement of your house. Just like bring, bring the dudes up. Bring your friends over. <laughs> yeah. Bring, bring your friends, friends over. over. Bring your friends over. Yeah. You know, yeah. bring a keg or a bottle of yeah. booze or whatever yeah. and just like, yeah. I don't know, destroy each other. <laughs> yeah. so, so, certainly some people have. And again, yeah. uh, as I mentioned, there are at least two stores here in the Seattle area that have very conducive environments for that. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, this is a very exciting thing, especially mm-hmm. as I've gotten older. As a kid, you know, I, I bought cards with, the allowance that I had or that my dad would give me before dropping me off at the card store, that sort of thing at the comic book shop. Um, but now with a little bit more means you can do things like really enjoy different aspects of the mm-hmm. game. So the original artwork for this stuff, um, will sell for I, most pieces sell for a minimum of, of a grand, the original uh-huh. artwork, the m- most expensive pieces j- just this year have gone for over 30 grand, the original artwork. And they're not, particularly big there are certain you know they have to be a certain aspect ratio to fit in the cards but like the original painted oil uh you know oil and canvas artwork uh goes for a lot of money because there's a lot of collectors who either grew up with the game or got into it and happen to have money from other sources Mm -hmm. typically other Mm -hmm. sources Mm -hmm. um that are now into it because it's they they value it that much um and i mentioned you know there's uh there's some of the cards that are iconic that are that go back all the way to the beginning of the game and are not produced anymore. Mm-hmm. You have the, you know, perfect, you know, mint copy of this. Um, I think one went for auction for almost 200 grand this past, <laughs> this, this past year. Oh yeah. So, you know, my, my job nowadays is uh, uh, partially as an investment analyst. If you mm-hmm. look at the gaming industry, mm-hmm. especially any company that's involved in digital gaming, yep. they are just printing money. Oh, I bet. They print money. Uh, and so you can imagine some of those folks who are creating this stuff, who've been, who've benefited from mm-hmm. the profits they've generated, then go around, uh, then go and reinvest it in the, you know, the, the things that came up for them that inspired them to go in this field mm-hmm. to begin with, right. um, whether it's in childhood or later on in life. Yeah. So that's interesting. So that, that kind of is a nice, uh, it's a nice segue into the next 
piece. I mean, so I mean, if you're talking about the strategy of these game, yeah, right. You're talking about the investment value of these cards, yep. mm-hmm. um, and you mentioned you do investing as well. So, like, you're a, you're a public investor as well as an angel investor. Yes, right? yes. So, is there some like overlaps and parallels between, say, like Magic the Gathering and stuff that you're doing now? <laughs> so, interestingly enough, one of the uh, one of the best players in the history of Magic it currently runs a hedge fund. His name is John Finkel. He's out in New York. Mm. Um, and so he's just recognized as one of the all-time greats, maybe the greatest, maybe number two, something like that. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of skill sets that go together. Mm. I have another friend of mine who shall remain unnamed. Uh, Shout out to Guy. <laughs> that, that, I, that I knew, <laughs> knew uh, from college. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he currently works and you know has a high-profile job at an investment bank in New York. Mm-hmm. And... He, you know, we talk magic from time to time. Nice. Right. The, the, if you like strategy games, it doesn't have to be magic. It doesn't right. have to be chess or whatever. Um, a lot of the same concepts of being able to think logically, being able to sequence yeah. different events together, being able to project into the future, um, being able to think in probabilities, yep. that absolutely... Hedging your bets. Yeah, oh, yeah, 100, like 100%. Um, a lot of magic players... Um, play poker as well because the skill sets are completely complementary. Ah, uh, I got it. Um, it's, it's, you'll, if you follow poker, which is much more followed than magic, um, you might know some names and if you dig into them, like these famous poker players, actually it turns out they're also known in the magic world too. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyways, um, those things do go together. And so, uh, it, like I said earlier in the show, I just live inside my head. That's generally where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I tend to go, and uh, as an investor, that's great. It's a it's a pursuit where a lot of thinking tends mm-hmm. to be rewarded, a lot mm-hmm. of logic tends to be rewarded yep. over time. And I got bit by the investing bug a long time ago. Basically, my story is I started earning my first paycheck from the army at the tender age of twenty two, back when I graduated college, two thousand five. And at the end of the first pay period, which as uh, all us government servants or former government servants know, it goes from uh, is on the first and fifteenth of every month. Yep. Um, at the end of the first pay period, I had money left over, so I'm like, "What am I going to do with this money?" Right. And I started reading about it and started realizing, "Oh, I'm supposed to invest it and let it compound over time." Yep. So from age 22 to when I retire, whenever that might be, it'll become a lot of money. And slowly but surely, I started with that at age 22. And before I knew it, it became not just something that I did because money was left over, something I was actively seeking to do, something I really liked, something that became a little addictive Mm -hmm. because it felt good. Sure, man. Kind of like hitting, uh, you know, kind of like winning at a casino in a sense. I mean, it's different, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's like when you're you're playing blackjack and they give you 21, you know, you're like, oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And, now I'm at the point where, you know, I am lucky enough to do it as a profession, mm-hmm. doing financial planning mm-hmm. and also money management mm-hmm. um, as part of uh, a duo at my firm, Triple Summit Advisors. My, cool. my partner is Wei Wang, who I went to college with. What's the um, website? www.triplesummit.com. Um, and so, you know, we're fortunate, privileged enough and have the honor of taking care of 120 different clients nice. who, uh, for whom we manage over 25 million 
Can you tell me a little bit about um, the current environment? Um, I guess when it comes to like your company and the stuff that you focus on. Yeah. Um, as well as the, I mean, you do some angel stuff as well, yes. right? So as far as like the startup environment as yeah. well, like, yeah. Um, are you focused primarily in Seattle for either or both of these, or are you pretty open ended and on where you're at? So I'm not focused on Seattle solely because I happen to be here. I had a mm. meeting yesterday down in Tacoma, for example, mm. and I drove down there and drove back uh, from Kirkland down in Tacoma, and. You know, I'll do that because it happens to be nearby me. But yeah. I'll also go Proximity. and take a meeting in New York or in mm. DC or in mm-hmm. Chicago, depending on um, the need for that. Yep. We we don't discriminate or um, close our doors to clients who are out of state. And my partner happens to live in Massachusetts. Oh, cool! So um, we have um, clients across many states. As far as the environment, uh, and, and I should clarify that for our business, for Triple Summit Advisors, we do public market investing, not private market investing, because that's the mandate that we have with our clients. Yes. Um, so, so that's like stocks on the Dow Jones, S&P, generally, NASDAQ, yes. that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, generally. Um, we can do some things that are a bit smaller and more obscure, but it depends on the investment strategy. Yeah, sure. Um, and of course, financial planning is something that we believe is a cornerstone of any relationship with us, because without having a good plan, your investments aren't going to take you where you want to go. So anyways, that is um, triple the triple summit side of things. On the angel investing side of things, that's just something I pursue mm-hmm. myself. I was in the tech industry for a little bit. My wife works in the tech industry now. Mm-hmm. Um, being here in Seattle and previously I was in the Bay Area for eight years, you can't get away from it. It's, it's around it's pretty, all the time. Pretty thriving yeah. startup scene in both yeah. places, right? Yeah, we're recording this in South Lake Union, um, which is the home of Amazon. And it's well, literally, literally a block us. away from the Google, the new Google offices they're building. Yeah, so there you go. You, you, just, <clears throat> you cannot get away from it. Mm-hmm. And so I've been interested in, I can't say I've had any success in it yet, but uh, because these things take a long time, but I've been interested in over the last two years finding companies that I can understand Mm -hmm. where I think the team is the right team for the Mm -hmm. right market Mm -hmm. the right product. Um, And where they're small enough where they can take a check from me, that um, still matters to them. If you get too big, then my check doesn't count anymore. Um, And so that's the intersection of those things is what I look for. And that actually precludes a lot of companies, mm-hmm. uh, whether I understand them or not. There's a lot of them that I don't, um, whether it's the right team, the right, to- right product, right market. Just those two things right there is a pretty yeah. stringent fin- filter. Right. right. And, then, and then add on top of that, that they have to be small enough for me to actually, for them to actually want me to be part of well, the story. And that's kind of like, yeah. um, like if one of those things where if you find something that's simple or easily understandable. Yeah. And if you find a team that's strong, yeah, it's hard to find them at the right point in the Absolutely. business cycle before Absolutely. they start really taking off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is not a problem that I face solely the largest firms out there. Oh, yeah, 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 of right. course. Mm-hmm. If they have a $100 million to deploy in a single investment, they still have the problem of how do we find the right investment that wants our money mm-hmm. wants us on the team at the yep. right time that yep. we also believe in. Yep. Right. It's, it, it's a problem that applies throughout and there's no one who's solved this issue. Yeah. Every, every, the most well-known VCs out there still have networks of people just 
trying to find the right dude. Well, it's needle in the haystack stuff, yeah. right? Like yeah. I remember, um, you know, like when I when I was in grad school, when I was in business school, I got my MBA in finance. Yeah. Um, and we did some we did some project in one of the classes about like uh, startup investing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. VC angel type yep. stuff a little yep. bit. I've got a little bit of knowledge behind it, not yep. a lot of practical experience. Yep. But, um, you know, like when I read in school and that was almost 10 years ago, um, from 2009 to 2011. Yep. So just to give you some insight there. Yep. At that point, they're looking at um, what the theory was, you know, kind of cast a wide net. Yeah. And hope that one or two hit really big. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, to make up for the losses That's of right. the other ones. That's right. Um, so then I, you know, take that theory and then over the last 10 years or so, I've been pretty uh, deeply ingrained with startup ecosystems. Sure. Um, whether it's been here, Seattle, not so much. I haven't really been here that long yeah. anyways. But we met through Bunker Labs. Right. right. No, exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. And that's, so, in, in, in essence, yeah. it's a startup ecosystem. Right. 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 Um, but I was, I kept myself pretty familiar with the startup area in Boston when I was there. Right. New York when I was there. Right. I was heavily involved in Beijing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the process is all pretty much the same. Yeah. You know, in fact, even with what I do now, like as a, as a producer and a storyteller, it's, it's similar, just different, um, just different content. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, various investors, uh, VCs, angels, whatever, Google, right. Startup grind by Google, that yep. kind of stuff. Yep. Um, they try to put out as many networking events as many uh, accelerators yeah. or incubators yeah. as they you know, try to get those things going because yeah. they know that people are going to be coming at them like crazy. Yeah. Oh, I've got this startup idea. Oh, I've got this one. Oh, this is going to be great. It's going to change the world. Yeah. It's just like everybody's got this idea that's going to change the world. Sure. So they're coming at you. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like as a producer, people yeah. are coming at you going, oh my God, I've got to tell the story. I've got to tell the story. Sure, 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 sure. It's one thing to like have the idea, but it's another thing to actually be able to put it into a concrete um, framework. Yeah. Um, whether it's like a, like a script or whether it's like a business plan. Yep. Right. It's another thing to put it into that concrete framework. Yep. It's a whole other ball game to be able to turn that into action. 100%. You know, 100%. So, so I think a lot of what the, like those accelerators, incubators, the, um, the, the networking things, the, the classes where they get, you know, presentations on elevator pitches and whatever yeah. else, you know, I, I think a lot of that is to, for one, you know, it's a, it's a service, yep, mm-hmm. right. So people can they have people have an opportunity to kind of network, yep, um, get some experience in some of the stuff, get yep. some get some insight into what investors are looking at, right. But on the other end of it, it's a chance for the investors to filter. Oh yeah, to filter out 100%. quickly and efficiently. One hundred percent. Right. So the most famous accelerator out there, Y Combinator. YC, yep. Yeah. We'll have a demo day where there are startups in the cur- in their current cohort and current yep. class will pitch. And when they do that, the investors who attend mm-hmm. know that these companies have been vetted out of the thousands of applications right. they've gotten. Yep. Like these are the best ones that YC has determined, right? And have survived the, the process. Right. And so... In doing that, those investors have a lot of, or a lot more confidence that the starting point for their evaluations are already going to be good. Right. And time is, we only all have 24 hours Mm -hmm. in a day, right? And so they have to, investors, 
whether big or small, have to allocate their time in a certain way, in a way mm-hmm. that they think is going to make the most sense. And so yep. that's, that is a tremendous service that a good accelerator or a good sort of um, source of warm leads can, can provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then even that, even after going through that whole process, that filtration process of finding these companies that they want to invest in, even still it's a crapshoot. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's, 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 they're lucky if they get one out of 10, one out of a hundred that really hits. Yeah. Yeah. You know, probably closer to one out of a hundred, right? That is absolutely the model in, in VC and venture investing. And the reason why is because it's so difficult to tell ahead of time Mm -hmm. And also, you know, it makes sense that, you know, if you were to buy shares of Coke, let's say, yep. right, Coca-Cola, the risk and return profiles can be very different from um, making an angel investment oh, sure. in, in a company with no revenue. Right. But yeah. so, but like if you were an investor in a, if you were to invest in a company like Coca-Cola, yeah. you know, if you want to use like, I'd like, I'd like to use a baseball analogy. Sure, this, yeah, right? sure, sure. So if you invest in a company like Coca-Cola at this stage of the game, yeah, you're essentially bunting, hitting singles, right? You're going to get some return, but it's not going to be that much. Yeah, it it depends. It depends 100% on your analysis sure. of the business, where it's going, mm-hmm. and the valuation at which you can get an evaluation matters. So I'll give you an example right. of this. Um, Buffett, Warren Buffett famously bought shares of Coke Um I want to say it was late 80s, early 90s yeah. time frame when he was accumulating it. Mm-hmm. Um, despite having been very familiar with Coke for many decades prior to that, he chose to buy it at that time um, because he saw the economics of the business were fundamentally strong. Yep. And Coke in the 90s, despite having already penetrated many markets around the world, was still about to go on another rapid expansion. That was about the time they were going into China. Right, and right, exactly. A bunch of other markets. And so... He saw that and profited handsomely from mm-hmm. that. And this is from Coke. The company has yep. been around at that point for, I think, almost 100 years. Mm-hmm. And so you can absolutely still make great returns from established companies, mm. but the conditions have to be right. Yeah, sure. Um, so it, it depends on what it is you're looking for. And yeah. ultimately, what everyone should be looking for is how can I get the highest return taking the least amount of risk? Right. Well, right. so that's what I'm saying with like the Coke yes. example, right? Like, um, with Coke. Maybe yeah. he saw that, right? Yeah. yeah. But at the very minimum, he's hitting singles. Right. So so right. if so if he's that right. bad and he right. hit, and he goes to right. swing for a single and it right. goes over the fence, right. Great. Right. Worst case, right. he's on first base. Right. So, right? so, so like with yes. the with the angel stuff, yeah. even though even yeah. though you go through all that filtration process, right. right? You're still a home run only power hitter guy, yeah. right? Yeah, like you're yeah, either yeah, you're yeah, either yeah, slugging yeah, it over yeah, the fence yeah, or you're yeah, striking yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, as yeah. you may be aware with most big home run hitters that, that you know, that have the lower batting average, yeah. the num- higher number of strikeouts. Yeah. Right. Right. Like right. you got to get through those yeah. to get to the, yeah. to get to the home run. Yeah. Yeah. I know? think, I think that analogy is apt. It's yeah. quite apt here. Yeah. Right on, man. Um, how's the startup scene in general? I, th- I think we're getting close to the end. Yeah, I think sure. it feels like a yeah. pretty good yeah, stopping yeah. point, yeah. but I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, you're talking about investing a little bit, but like, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of, I, I guess I'm just curious about the current state. Yeah. Of startups, like what yeah. you know, what sort of um, you know sectors are you industry in, or are you industry? <laughs> what kind of sectors are you interested in right now? Like, what kind of things do you do you see? Um, what are the ones that interest you? You know, like what are the ones that you think have the areas that have potential? 
You know, you don't have to get into specific investments, obviously. That's a great question. And I've, I don't think that thematically about the tech world and the world of innovation. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is my day job and where I spend the bulk of my effort, Mm -hmm. um, doesn't necessarily, necessarily tilt that direction. Mm -hmm. Again, um, I'm hoping to hit more than singles, but I don't necessarily need to hit home runs in order to do my day job. Right. So, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's be generous here and say, I'm looking for doubles and triples. Yeah. That's right. So those, those are all-star MVP caliber players too. Right. 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 Um, and so as a result, um, I, I can't say that I know that much about the themes that like, say, let's say AI or robotics Mm -hmm. or, um, hyper fast transportation logistics, that sort of thing. Yep might be changing the world or solar or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Right? Um, I, I, I can't say I'm super knowledgeable about mm-hmm. those, those more emerging technologies. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that for me, um, I again, try to get that intersection of the company I understand team product market. I like, and the, and the need for me at this level. Right. And so I get, I get pitches all the time. I hear from companies all the time. I had just two this week. Um, and which is not a lot necessarily for someone who's active in this space, but for me, where it's not my day job, that yeah. just takes up time, mm-hmm. right? And for me, they were both no's. They're just both no's. Um, I how quickly did you make that decision? So Warren Buffett talks about having the too hard pile, where yeah. rather than trying to spend extra hours, extra days trying to solve a puzzle that's too hard for you and outside of your this is his term too. A circle of competence. Mm. You just put in the too hard pile. You say, "I don't understand this," and it's take I'm, too much effort to figure it out. Yeah, and there's there's plenty of fish where I'm fishing. Why go fish over there? Let yeah. somebody else make that money. And so he talks about this all the time, where he's like, "Okay, they missed out on um, Netflix, right? They didn't invest in Netflix, um, and they don't really feel bad about that." Uh, I'll just use that as an example. They've never said, um, him and his partner, Charlie Munger, that we feel bad about missing out on mm-hmm. Netflix, um, even though there's a lot of money to be made there. But they do feel bad about missing out on Google. Mm. Why? Because their businesses were paying Google one, five, fifty dollars $50 a click, right? Mm. So they're like, wow, we're spending <clears throat> tons of money on Google, and we're happy to because we get ROI on this. Mm-hmm. But they didn't then turn around and say, well, they could we have just buy up. shares of Google, right? Mm-hmm. And so Charlie Munger's in public records about this saying that, hey, this was well within our circle of competence and we missed it and that's, you know, that's on us, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's outside of something I understand, I don't even bother with it. If it's yeah. within, if I get an opportunity that I do understand yep. and I just, and I'm like, I really like this, but I don't want to do it for mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z reason, then I'm going to beat myself up if I, if I miss out on something that's really big. Yeah. So what are, what are some of these areas that are like in your confidence? That yeah, sure. Are, cool. So my first love in the world of investing is always going to be consumer products and things like that because it's something I understand very well as a consumer, as someone who's used these things for uh, these sorts of products for all my all my life. Um, so uh, very generally easy to understand. Going through some major shifts right now with the rise of Amazon reviews and the internet and direct-to-consumer as opposed to going through retailers and Mm -hmm. other distribution channels, but still strong brands are definitely important. Um, So that's always going to be my first love um, and always going to be a huge part of how I look at investing and things like that. 
After that, it's going to be companies that are generally B2B, but that have a product or service that no one else can really replicate. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, and this is not a recommendation to buy anything. This is just an analysis of uh, what I think is compelling about the economics like a, of company. Like a unique service selling point, USP. So most people don't even know what this company is other than that it was involved in the financial crisis somehow, but Moody's, mm. right? The ratings company. The, right, right, the ratings agency. So Moody's is an oligopoly with S&P and to some extent Fitch, which is another ratings mm-hmm. agency. But there's not a lot of them anyways. There's there's not, hence right. the oligopoly. Hence there's, the oligopoly, There's just right. a couple of them. Right. right. Um, they Basically, for the listeners that aren't familiar with this, these ratings agencies, um, you know, they analyze um, public, probably private companies too, but they definitely analyze public companies and they give them like a, a credit rating or yes. like a buy or sell rating or something along those lines. A credit and rating a lo- in this case. It's, yes. it's the credit rating in this yeah. case. And, and this will determine... Um, the types of rates they might get if they need investment. If they need to borrow if money. they need to exactly. borrow money, exactly. right? Exactly. Like from bonds right. or things like that. Right. And their credibility as, tar- as far as their ability to pay it back. Yep, yep, yep. And so if you are a large corporation, you are an Apple, you are a Verizon, you are a Netflix. Sure. And you want to get a gigantic bond deal done. Mm-hmm. You have to go through these companies. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Because there has to be a rating assigned because that is how the investors start their analysis Mm -hmm. for is this company, what do we charge on this bond deal? What's the rate of interest, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And other terms and things like that. And so every every time someone wants to do a large debt deal, these companies get a cut of it. It's, it's It's a toll on the road of capitalism, if you will. Um, and that's exactly how Buffett describes it, by it's the like way. like the Lord yeah. of the Rings, like, you shall not pass. That's right, that's right, that's right. Unless you pay me a small fee, which exactly. is only a tiny portion of the deal. But that fee the is scheme of mostly margin, mm-hmm. mostly profit for these yep. companies. And you have to go through this toll. Yep. And so they have fantastic economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they're oligopolistic. Mm-hmm. There are tons of companies that would love to break this oligopoly. But even the financial crisis couldn't bring these companies down where they had some role to play in mm-hmm. um, misrating these bonds, um, these um, subprime bonds and things like that that mm-hmm. helped to you know bring the economy to its knees, right? So they're still they're back and mm-hmm. you know doing as much business as ever. Um, Buffett, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett's company, owns a significant portion of Moody's, um, and he's been long on public record about you know how fantastic it is as a business. Again, mm-hmm. not a recommendation to buy anything, um, but just an analysis of the economics of the business. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the type of stuff I look for um, uh, businesses where there's a a product or service that you sell that the customer can't do without. It's better if the customer really, really likes it and mm-hmm. really, really wants to pay for it. But even if the customer doesn't really want to pay for it, sometimes it's still a good business. Well, even utilities are yeah can be good investment opportunities, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you've got to pay the bills. Yeah. They they can be, and it's just looking for the right combination right. of uh, growth and mm-hmm. price. Yeah, so, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, I think. At this point, I think, like I said, it's a pretty, pretty good natural point to stop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I appreciate your time. Like this has been really insightful. We've talked about a lot of different things. 
Uh, and I hope people get a little bit out of all of it. Yeah, right. me too. Um, real quick before we go, um, you, anything you want to plug? I know you, you mentioned the website already. Might uh, might as well mention that again. Yeah. Um, so anything else you might want to push there? Absolutely. So uh, two things actually. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't touch on this too much, um, but you, as I mentioned, you and I met through Bunker Labs. Yes. Um, which is a nonprofit focused on helping veterans and military spouses. Shout out to Todd Connor. Yep, uh, the CEO and founder of Bunker Labs. Um, it's we're a nonprofit that helps veterans and military spouses to start their own businesses or nonprofits, their own organizations. And we're national with chapters in a lot of different cities all around America, including mm-hmm. here in Seattle, where I'm a city leader. Uh, I'm a volunteer. And if anyone wants to reach out to learn more about Bunker, I'm always open for that. And I'm going to give out my email here in a little bit. So the other thing I want to mention, of course, is my business, which mm-hmm. we've already talked about, Triple Summit Advisors. That is my day job. Um, we are at www.triplesummit.com. And you can reach me directly at dan at triplesummit.com. Nice. Appreciate that. And you're right. We didn't mention um, Bunker Labs or the Veteran Residence Program too much. I just want to leave a quick blurb about that. Yep. You know, I was accepted in the veteran in residence program powered by Bunker Labs, which essentially gave me six months of free office space, um, including this makeshift studio that I've set up to begin interviewing some of these guests. So um, they've done a lot of great things for me. Like the value that I've gotten out of it so far has been immeasurable. So if there are any other veteran entrepreneurs out there that are, you know, interested in being part of a veteran entrepreneur community, um, this is a good place to look. Veterans in Residence Program, which is a WeWork program powered mm-hmm. by Bunker Labs. Great. All right. Uh, again, thanks a lot, Dan. Appreciate it. Everyone give it up for my friend, Dan Canavas. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to Half the City with Brian Shinborn, presented by AB Media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, and leave a solid five-star review to ensure these stories get spread far and wide. For more information, as well as to listen to other shows, including Relentless, a survivor's search for passion, purpose, and inner peace, and beyond Relentless, be sure to check out 8bmedia.com. Thank you for listening.